Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. All right, so today we start a new sermon series. We're going to be taking a drive through the minor prophets. And you might say, oh no, we just read through those in the Bible reading plan. I mean, these are like the clean pages in your Bible, right? They're the ones that aren't marked up. They're the ones you never go to. You never like intentionally do your devotional reading in the book of Nahum. You just don't do it. It just doesn't happen very often. And uh, But what our desire is that you will walk away from this summer of study. We're going to work through uh, one sermon on each book. There are 12 minor prophets. And you'll walk away with a new appreciation of this part of the scripture. It's a message from God for us. And so we need to hear it. And, um, you know, I was thinking about these these books. And I was thinking about our... Um, the, the title for our series, we're calling it U-Turn. And, um, you know, when you're driving in your car and uh, you have your GPS going and you pass the destination, you know, that you had programmed in and all of a sudden the GPS starts barking at you, right? Uh, in 500 feet, make a U-Turn. In 100 feet, make a U-Turn. And it keeps going and going until you finally go, oh, shut up, turn it off, right? And that's exactly the message of these prophets. The people were going in the wrong direction. They had passed God's destination for them. And they were the voice of God speaking to them, saying, turn around, turn back to the Lord. Disaster is coming. And if you don't do it soon, it's going to be too late. That's the general message of these books. But, but yet, Embedded in these in these little books are also some incredible pictures of the gospel, incredible words to us, connections with the New Testament. And so we want to draw those things out for you as we work our way through the minor prophets. So each of these sermons, we're going to start out by looking at this. Whoa, we're going to start out by looking at this chart. Okay, I'm excited about charts. Maybe you are, too. Right. And so. Let's take a look here. We've got, we've got the northern kingdom of Israel. We've got the southern kingdom of Judah. We have a couple of foreign kingdoms that are the focus of each of these different minor prophets. Today, we're going to focus in on Israel. And uh, so why don't we put that up there? Um, put up Israel. Uh, we'll focus in on it. Yes. And uh, Hosea, we see, is right at the end of the northern kingdom in 722 BC the northern kingdom the 10 tribes of the north will be completely destroyed and so he's the last word of god before all of this happens okay so i want you to note his place in this timeline now we have some copies of this chart for you out on the information desk so if you geek out on this kind of stuff and you'd like to kind of follow along i would encourage you to pick one of those up and uh, then you can you can take it home and kind of kind of follow through as we work through each one of these prophets together. Now, today we're looking at the book of Hosea and Hosea has such 
a powerful message. Like I said, it's a message to the northern kingdom, but it's also a message to us because it is one of the most vibrant pictures of the gospel that we have in the Old Testament. And uh, so today we're going to look at three images of the gospel as seen in the book of Hosea. And we're going to be focusing on chapter one, the first 11 verses, those verses that were read to us earlier by Colin. So let's begin by looking at a shocking display of the love of God, a shocking display of God's love. The focus of this book uh, is the opening illustration, which is the family situation of the prophet himself. Let's read it again from the scripture. It says, God says to the prophet Hosea, he says, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. What? For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, the daughter of Diblium. Now, I don't know what you think of when you see the word Gomer, the name Gomer. There's only one thing that comes to my mind, and that's Gomer Pyle. If you remember reruns back in the day, uh, that was a great TV show uh, in the 1960s. But this goofy guy was Gomer Pyle. And that's all I can, I ever, all I can think of when I think of Gomer. Uh, but anyway, we're going we're gonna to look at what happened here with this woman. They have children together. Jose and Gomer were married And um, I want to talk about the children in a moment. I want to set them aside for a second. But what we see in the story is that she continues to be unfaithful. The Bible says that she is promiscuous before Hosea marries her, and she continues to be unfaithful and promiscuous after he marries her. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't clearly describe what happens, but at some point after having three children, she abandons the family and she goes off with other lovers and ends up getting herself mixed up in all kinds of things. We'll talk about that as we move forward. But did God command this? I mean, did God actually tell his prophet to marry a woman who was in essence, a prostitute? It seems strange. And if you read the commentaries on this book, there are many commentators who try to try to get around this, but there's no way around it. This is the command of God. Why does God command this? Well, because God entered into a covenant with his people and he knew that they would be unfaithful. You know, God knows the future, right? God knows the future. So when God chose Israel, he knew that Israel would be unfaithful to him. But yet he chose them anyway. And he loved them anyway. And he entered into, a, in essence, a marriage covenant with them anyway, knowing that they would be unfaithful. Now, for those of us who are married, when we got married, I mean, we were pretty idealistic about marriage probably when we did it. But even so, we had the faith that the person we were marrying would be faithful to us throughout our marriage, right? That was at least our faith on the day of our marriage. But yet God knew that they would be unfaithful. God knew that they would do all these terrible things and run after all of these foreign gods. But yet still he entered into a loving covenant with these people. And that's why he tells Hosea, marry this woman. 
even though you know that she's unfaithful, because that is the way that I love my people. That is the way I've loved the people of Israel. I love them even knowing that they would be unfaithful to me. And this is the way that God loves us. You see, God knows that you are going to be unfaithful. But yet he called you to be his child, knowing that some days you would not follow him and that you would be unfaithful to him. Sometimes every moment of the day you would be unfaithful. Time after time you would fail God. But yet he still called you because he loves you. Knowing full well our propensity to rebel against him. That is amazing love, is it not? It gets even more incredible. So like I said, Gomer goes off and she begins to get involved with other men. She abandons the family. And now in chapter three, what does the Lord say to to Hosea? He says, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now, I knew there was a reason I didn't like raisin bread. It's in the Bible. Okay. anyway, um, take a look at what what happens here. Go show your love to your wife again. Go love her. And so he did this just as God had commanded to redeem her possibly from the slave market or possibly she was connected with another man and he had to liberate her from that man or possibly she had been sold into slavery and so now he had to buy her back. So the the scripture says he bought her back for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Well, what does that mean? Well, I packed up if each of these bags represent about 54 pounds of barley, this is what 130 pounds or 430 pounds of barley would look like. This would be a homer and a lethic of barley. And this is six ounces of silver. This is what he used to pay for this woman. It's a large amount of money. It's a large amount of resources. In my reading, it said that this is about six months worth of the wages of a common wage earner. Now, I looked up the average salary in the United States. Um, As of this year, it's somewhere about $70,000. So half a year's salary would be $35,000 is what he spent on this woman to buy her back. He had already married her. He had already paid a bride price for this woman. And now he pays it again, an extravagant amount of money in order to liberate her from where she was. This is the way God loves us. This is the amount of resources that God has placed into the relationship that he has with you. Look at this picture that Hosea paints prophetically in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, this is describing, God is describing how he's going to pursue his wayward wife, 
Israel. He says, therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as in the day of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. Wow. This is, this is, this is really interesting. Look at what the Lord is doing. The Lord is pursuing Israel. And he says, I'm going to allure her. I'm, see, I'm going to take her out into the country out into the wilderness, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her because this is going to remind her about our first date in the wilderness when I brought her out of Egypt. And she's going to remember how she loved me back then, and then she's going to love me again. You can see the earnestness of God's love for his people as he wants them to reconnect with him. This is God's desire. It gets even better. Look at what he says as we continue on in chapter 2. It says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will be engaged to you. We've got somebody in here just got engaged. Right? Landon, Landon Rogers and Kayla have just gotten engaged just yesterday. Right? Isn't that awesome? And all of the excitement and all of the beauty and all of the hope and all of the promise that's associated with that. That's what the Lord is saying. He's saying, I will betroth you again. I will love you again. And I will call you into relationship with me again forever. And I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice. And I will betroth you in love and compassion. And I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you will acknowledge the Lord. This is the way the Lord pursues us when we're sinful. This is the way that God loves us. This is his heart for you and his heart for me. It's such a beautiful picture, isn't it? People say that the Old Testament and the prophets in particular are all about judgment and punishment. But there is probably not a more striking picture of the grace and the unconditional love of God than in the book of Hosea. This is one of the most vivid pictures of God's grace and his love for us that we could ever see. You know, there's no more crushing pain than the unfaithfulness of a partner in marriage. And God chose that to illustrate what he feels when we are unfaithful to him. That's what he feels, that level of pain, that level of hurt and betrayal of trust. And there is no greater forgiveness than to restore an unfaithful spouse. I mean, there is no greater forgiveness than to forgive a spouse who has been unfaithful. And God chose that as the picture of what his forgiveness is for you. It's a shocking display of the love of God. Am I right? How much are you worth to God? Hosea doesn't take back a repentant wife. She doesn't do anything. He goes and he finds her. And he pays an exorbitant amount of money for her. He buys her back. You know, I look at my own life sometimes and I think about 
what am I worth to the Lord? And I reflect on my own sinfulness and my own failures in life and my propensity to sin against the Lord and do what I know is wrong. And I just continue to do it, right? We all do this and we evaluate our life based on our own criteria. But we need to evaluate God's love for us based on the price tag that he paid. Think about this for Gomer. If she ever doubted Hosea's love for her. Can you imagine what it was like when she was in bondage in this other man's house and Hosea drives up with his ox cart and he begins to unload these sack after sack after sack of grain and then pulls out a pouch of silver and gives it for her freedom? She didn't deserve it. But she walked out of that house free to return to her husband, one who loved her. That's the way God loves us. Okay, let's move on to an enduring symbol of redemption. An enduring symbol of redemption. Hosea and Gomer have three children. And when we read the text, it's very clear in the text that the first child was fathered by Hosea. And she bore him a son and his name was Jezreel. But you read on and the next two kids, not so much. Okay? And I would say, as you look at the theology of the book, most probably the second two children were not fathered by Hosea. That they were fathered out of her promiscuity. And as a result, Hosea takes them in as his own children and he names them. Now, what's the deal with these kids? What's the idea behind it? These children are like little clocks. This is a prophetic device used by certain prophets in the Old Testament. And they choose children because children grow up. Okay? And so they're like a little clock that grows up. Okay? When we first moved here to Tulsa, my wife was in Miss Amonic's class. And she was pregnant with her first child, with Emma. And so Emma is my clock. So I know how long I've been here at the Kirk. As Emma grows up, I think, wow, my goodness, I've been here a long time. She's so and, and so children are like a little clock. They mark time. And these children are going to mark time. And what's going to happen, these prophecies that are incorporated into the names of these children are going to come to fruition. They're going to come to pass before these, while, while these children are still alive. Okay? And so the first one's name is Jezreel. And Jezreel has to do with the judgment on the kings of Israel. The family of Jehu, who is the ruling dynasty at the time. And the most powerful king of the family of Jehu is a man named Jeroboam. And as you saw in the introduction in verse 1, Jeroboam is on the throne at the time when Hosea was king. He is a powerful, when Hosea was a prophet, he's a powerful king. And the, the country is very prosperous during the time of Jeroboam. But he does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so... Hosea is pronouncing judgment on him, on his dynastic household, and on all the kings of Israel. Because by the time little Jezreel grows up, all of the kings of Israel will be gone. There will be no king sitting on the throne of Samaria. And God's judgment for their sinfulness will happen and they will be, they will be murdered. They will be killed 
in very unglorious kinds of ways, terrible kinds of ways. That's Jezreel. The next child is Loruhama, and her name means not loved. Can you imagine naming a little girl not loved? I mean, it's a shocking kind of picture, isn't it? But this is what is happening. These people have rejected God and they're going to feel that God doesn't love them anymore because of what is about to happen to them. The next child is Lo Ami, which means not my people. Now think about it for a moment, what's happening here. Within the lifetime of these children, the kings of Samaria will be overthrown. The nation will go into captivity. And it seems like these children represent the end to the covenant people of God. It's the end for them. It's like God's lost that love and feeling. But that's not the case. Because in an interesting twist of the, of the story of the prophecy in chapter 2, verse 23, we see this prophetic statement. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. In other words, I will show my love to Loruhama, whose name means not loved, not loved. And I will say to those called not my people, in other words, Loami, you are my people. And so this is, these children, when we look at them, they seem to be a message of enduring judgment on the people of God. But God turns it around and turns it into a message of redemption. That God will turn it around. You deserve to not be my people. You deserve not to be loved. But yet I will love you and I will call you my people. And you eventually will call me your God. And that's the way God's grace functions. This is the redemption of the Lord. As we talk about an enduring symbol of redemption, I couldn't help but think about the Lord's Supper. I'm so glad that this sermon fell on a first Sunday when we were celebrating the Lord's Supper because it fits so well together. This is an enduring picture of God's redemption for us. Amen? Now, it's powerful but it's a little bit creepy, right? It really focuses on the death. Let's face it, it's ritualistic cannibalism, okay? When we look at communion, it's kind of hard to swallow, literally, because it focuses on Jesus' death and it focuses on what I deserve for my sin and my rebellion. But as we look at it more closely, we realize that it's about the price that God paid for our redemption. It's a lot more than sacks of grain. It's the very blood and body of God himself that was broken and poured out for us. Again, look at the price tag when you evaluate your self-worth. Don't look at who you are. Look at what God paid for you. That's powerful. That's reality. That's the truth. Not what we think in our mind. I think about these little children and their names. Their first name speaks of the consequence of their sin. Lo Ruhamah. 
not loved. Lo ami, not my people. But these children had Hosea's last name. The scripture never tells us that he cast them out of his house. He continued to love them and care for them. And they became his heirs. And they became, they they continued to be part of his household. They were his children. And he cared for them. There may be consequences for our rebellion. But God still calls us his children. God has still given us his identity. Even in the midst of our sin and our unfaithfulness, God does not withdraw from us his name and his, our identity in him. These children born of Gomer's unfaithfulness were loved by their father and retained his name. Just as we are loved by our father and we retain his name. No matter what we do. That is an enduring symbol of our redemption. Okay, let's go now to the final image of the gospel here. And that is a future hope of restoration. Now let's go back to chapter one. Our passage concludes with a strange but hopeful message. It's kind of weird. But let's take a look at it. See what it says. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. All right, let's take a look at what this is saying. It seems as we read this first statement, yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of Abraham, doesn't it? That's Abrahamic covenant language. That's the original promise that God made to these people all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12. And he said to Abraham, I am going to make your descendants like the sands on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to use you and I'm going to use you to bless the world. That was God's promise to these people from the very beginning. And he's calling them to remember that promise because God doesn't break his promises. Amen? God doesn't break his promises to his people. No matter what we do, God doesn't break his promises. Then the next thing he talks about is this unification of Israel and Judah. Well, that reminds us of when the kingdom was united back in the day of David. And they will be united under one leader. Who is who? Jesus, of course, right? And so we've got this messianic echo here in this passage of a coming leader who will bring God's people back together, who will rule like David ruled over one kingdom, unified together in the power of God. Wow, that's pretty cool. But how can all this be possible? In 722 BC, the Assyrian army will come sweeping into Israel and will destroy the people of Israel. It will crush the northern kingdom of 10 tribes. 
It will go to Samaria, the capital city, and destroy the city and take everyone off into captivity. The people will be taken to another part of the world and they will be settled in a new land and forced to intermarry with other people and they will disappear as an, as an, as an identifiable culture and people into the, into the nations of the world. So how will this happen? When they never come back, the people of Judah will return. They'll be taken by the Babylonians into captivity and the Persians will return them and they will be able to reestablish their culture in the land. That doesn't happen to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is smashed and it is destroyed and it is dispersed into the nations of the world. But look at chapter 13 of Hosea, verse 14. It says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave and I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Does that verse sound familiar to you at all? Does it ring some dim bell in the back of your mind? It should because this very verse is quoted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, which is the first ever written theological discussion of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul goes back to the book of Hosea in order to establish the veracity and the necessity for the resurrection of Jesus. He goes back to this book, to this story. These people who were dead, where there was no hope, God will bring them back to life. How does that happen? Well, God will call Paul to go to the nations and call out from among those, those who are to be the children of God. Well, that, they're represented by the, those 10 tribes that got absorbed into the nations of the world. And now God's going to call them back out in a spiritual way. They're us. They're you and me. We're not Jewish. Right? But God has called us out from among the nations. Then called us the children of God. He's talking about us. He's talking about the new covenant and the new kingdom that will be established under this new leader. He's talking about resurrection from the dead. He's talking about the gospel. It's amazing, but it doesn't end there. Look at chapter 14, verse four. This is the way he ends. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. This is God's final statement to the people of Israel before they go into captivity. And he says to them, I will heal their waywardness and I will love them freely. And my anger has turned away. This is the way God sees us. You see, there's no antidote for our sin. We keep screwing up. We keep destroying everything. There's no way for us to move forward. So God sent Jesus to die for our sin. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us and to heal our waywardness 
and to be an enduring confirmation of his love for us. And his anger has been turned away. And now we are the children of God. This is the gospel in the minor prophets. And you thought it was all doom and gloom. It's not. This is the good stuff. And it's always been here. It's always been here. This is the nature and character of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this incredibly amazing picture that you drew in the Old Testament, hidden away in these little books that we hardly ever read. But it's an incredible, an incredible message of your love and your faithfulness and your long-suffering and your desire to be in relationship with us. You have forgiven us and you have cleansed us. And Lord, for that, we are eternally grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.